0: This is the Monday, February 1st, 2016 Super Bowl Week episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on
1: iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning, as well as Classical Wisdom Wednesdays and History in Five Fridays. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old towns of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor, where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. You can also catch us on iTunes, Spreaker, and many other personal audio outlets. And you can even tune us in on many new model car stereos, where you can listen to iHeartRadio just like you listen to any other radio right there in the dashboard. Today, of course, we're not driving a car, but a time machine. In fact, it's a team bus, and we're going to travel to the dawn of the 20th century, when sports were really taking off and really running into some headwinds. This is a time when Theodore Roosevelt was in the White House and enjoying his bully pulpit. He was an advocate of the strenuous life, of course, and a boxer himself. He was our youngest president, and he saw sports as an essential part of developing physical fitness and character. Unfortunately, one sport kept seeing young men die on the field of play. That spurred a movement to ban the game outright that we hear from every now and then up to the present day. That game was called football, but on the gridiron, it resembled rugby much more than the game the Denver Broncos and Carolina Panthers will play in San Francisco. That'll be the Sunday after we upload this episode. Today's guest is John J. Miller, and he's here to talk about his book, The Big Scrum. How Teddy Roosevelt Saved Football. The book looks at how TR threw himself into reforming the game with his typical energy and paved the way for this 50th Super Bowl, which well over 100 million people will enjoy on television. It's an incredible number when you consider around the time of TR's presidency, there were about 25 million or so people in the United States. John J. Miller is a correspondent for National Review, contributor to The Wall Street Journal, and author of four books, including a novel, the first assassin, and the non-fiction offering, Our Oldest Enemy, a history of America's disastrous relationship with France. He's also the director of the Dow Journalism Program at Hillsdale College, and most important for today's topic, is a proud fan of his college team, the Michigan Wolverines, which is why in his honor you're hearing hail to the victors in the background. Originally called just the victors when student Louis L. Bell wrote it in 1898, it's the UM Fight Song. You can follow him on Twitter at Heymiller, like him at facebook.com slash Haymiller, or visit him at you guessed it, Heymiller.com. He also hosts a podcast you'll want to check out if you're listening here. The show is called The Bookmonger with John J. Miller. Okay, now that we have our preseason out of the way, so to speak, let's pile into that team bus turn time machine and hear about the big scrub. I'm joined on the line by John J. Miller, author of The Big Scrum, How Teddy Roosevelt Saved Football. He's been kind enough to join us this Super Bowl 50 week. Thank you for making the time to talk with the History Author Show.
0: Thanks for having me on.
1: Now, in the period after the Civil War, sports kind of go from being nowhere to being everywhere. They're slowly ramping up so that by the time Theodore Roosevelt gets into the White House – It's kind of everywhere, and it's built up a resistance to it. So he kind of jumps in to reform football, and that's really a turning point not only for the game of football but for all of sports because we're having baseball now and this kind of thing. So let's start in the present before we look back because when we watch the Super Bowl this coming Sunday, people really owe a debt to Theodore Roosevelt. So who do you like in this game, Denver Broncos, Carolina Panthers?
0: Well, first of all, I'm just hoping for a good game as a football fan. Generically, I would just enjoy seeing a, a close match and something that goes down to the wire and you know a heroic performance in in the fourth quarter. Um, my head tells me Carolina is probably going to win this one, but my heart is with the Denver Broncos. I've been a fan of theirs since I was a kid. I'm from Detroit and I live in Michigan, so I'm a Detroit Lions fan. I really just can't help it. But being a Lions fan is kind of like a curse, right? Mm -hmm. Not the best franchise in the history of professional football. And when I was a boy, I needed a new winter coat and I wanted an NFL jacket. I guess I didn't want a Lions jacket, probably because they weren't very good that season or for whatever reason. But I was in the third grade and I needed a new winter coat. I wanted an NFL jacket. My mom took me to Sears or JCPenney or some store like that. And we're looking at the coats and she gently directed me toward the bright orange one because she thought if I was playing in the street cars would see me and this would be a a safer coat to wear compared to another one so I got a Denver Broncos coat when I was a kid and I became a Broncos fan as a result and they went on to lose a couple of Super Bowls pretty quickly then this was back in the days of Craig Morton is the quarterback, and Randy Gradishar on the defense, and the Orange Crush, and these were some good teams. But they wanted to lose a bunch of Super Bowls <laughs> while yeah. I was, was a boy. Might have been you, yeah. But I've but I've always been <laughs> fond of them as a result.
1: Yeah, the Denver Broncos went a bunch of times. I was surprised to hear that they're tied for the most trips there, but they're two and five. And it was to the point where John Elway said when he made it to the Super Bowl that his mother said to him, oh gosh, you really have to go again. I mean, she felt bad for him having to go again because they lost. And of course, then they ended up winning the two in a row and became a dynasty there. But they tended to have really bad luck. They would hit the other teams in the Super Bowl when they were doing great. Their blowout losses have been by a couple score of 206 to 58. So that's a lot of scoring and it's just because they really ran into a buzzsaw and it does look like history is about to repeat itself. Hopefully not. Being a Giants fan, I'm going to go to my local bar, the cottage in Teaneck, New Jersey. And while I'm there, I'm going to have a few beer and squint. And then eventually after a few pints, maybe it looks like it's Eli playing. So everyone seems to be rooting for Peyton. When you get to be an older guy, right, you want to see whether it's him or Yammer Yager, you want to see these guys do really well. So hopefully, yes, we will have a good game and it, it would be nice to see somebody go out on top. It'd be a great sports story.
0: It sure would. And I do got to say, I kind of like the Panthers too. I do like their story. I like how they play football. And Cam Newton is a colorful character, charismatic, a great player. And in another year, if it wasn't the Broncos and it'll probably never be the Lions, <laughs> I might be for them too. They're They're a good team and fun to watch. So let's just hope for a good game.
1: Yeah, I think so. Hopefully that's what will end up happening. And certainly he does have a cannon for an arm. So it'll be a good storyline, which is, of course, what folks in the media like to have. So... We'll go back now to the days when a player like Cam Newton with his running style, people sometimes complain about a running quarterback, and I'm not immune to that either. I like to see them throw and air it out. But in the early days of the game, when Rutgers and Princeton played the first college football game, there wasn't that forward pass. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Of course, as a Rutgers alumni, I'm very proud of that first game in 1869. The statue outside of our stadium depicts a player from that era, and he's wearing almost no protection. He looks like kind of a hipster. He's got the wool hat on and the sweater. He's not wearing pads. There's just no protection. There's no real calling of penalties here at this point. It's just a rough and tumble game. So give us an idea of just how brutal the game would have been in Theodore Roosevelt's day. and. How it would have been specifically when his predecessor as vice president, Garrett Hobart, who also went to Rutgers, how would it have been in 1869? Would you have wanted to walk out there on that gridiron with no protection?
0: <laughs> yeah, a great question. I'm, I'm going to answer your question by starting in in the present day, because when sports historians look back on this era of football, they're not going to be so interested in who won Super Bowl 50. Was it Peyton? Was it Cam they're going to focus on the great debate of the last several years which is about concussions and the long-term health effects of serious head injuries and what does that mean for the sport how did football adapt to this problem this challenge this is what they're going to talk about and football does have a problem today as a serious problem is trying to confront it but if we turn back the clock go back a little more than a century to the 1905 football season, for instance. Let's start with a statistic. 18 players died playing football in 1905. Incredible! Now, think about that. 18, 18 players died. I mean, we're not talking about concussions. We're talking about actual deaths on the field. 18 died that year. That's an awful lot of people. And this was happening every year. And it was happening at all levels, from the sandlots to the schools to big-time college football. There was really no professional football to speak of at this time. So it was happening at all levels. It was happening every year. And a lot of people became concerned about it. And there arose a social and political movement that tried to ban football, thought this is modern gladiatorial combat. It has no place in the America of today. We need to get rid of this violent and brutal and deadly sport. So the conversation we're having today is about the health of our athletes, and that's an important one. But back then, more than a century ago, it was really a a matter of life and death. And so this, this social and political movement arose. They wanted to prohibit football, ban it it took the intervention of Theodore Roosevelt to stop them and save the game.
1: It's an amazing time in anything. And I think when you get to write about Theodore Roosevelt, it's an exciting thing to write and an exciting thing to read. So when I saw this book, I said, great. There's a book that combines two things. You love football. You love TR. He loved the game. It's really interesting. And then you step back and get sucked into the time and you say, okay, there's no quarterback, there's no forward pass, there's not end zone receptions, not a lot of these things that we cheer in the game today. And in fact, there's death on the field. There's not just death. You hear a player like Junior Seau who tragically takes his own life and they relate it to the game. But you're talking, if you look at that field, count 18 guys, you know, that's one full team and a few guys on the other team. This is actually happening and people are recoiling. But TR steps in. He declares football is on trial because I believe in the game. I want to do all I can to save it. And you write in the big scrum that it's too much to call him a savior, but he might be called the indispensable fan. So I wanted you to make your case as you do in the book for TR is the number one fan there waving the foam finger.
0: He's got one of the best biographies of American presidents. If he had never become president, he'd still have a great biography. And one of the great things about his biography, when you write about him, is the written record is so rich. He was writing a lot, even as a boy, and we can go in and and investigate all that. He was born in 1858, and he was a scrawny, sickly little kid. He was racked by asthma, really chronic asthma, terrible asthma. And this was at a time when... You didn't take for granted that a child would become an adult. We do that now. But back then, a lot of kids just didn't make it. And Theodore Roosevelt's parents worried about him. They wondered if he would make it. And they were desperate to help him. This was a wealthy family. The Roosevelts were successful in business. His father was Theodore Roosevelt Sr. The Teddy Roosevelt we know is really Theodore Roosevelt Jr. They tried everything to help this kid. They even resorted to quack cures. They had Teddy smoking cigars because they wondered whether that would help clear up his lungs and help the asthma. It goes to to show you how, on the one hand, how primitive medicine was at the time, but also just how desperate they were to help this kid. Well, nothing really worked until uh, an encounter when Roosevelt was about 11 years old. And we know it because it's told in What's in Roosevelt Family Lore, and it appears in a memoir written by his sister. And when Teddy was about 11 years old, he's summoned to his father's office in their Manhattan home. And Theodore Roosevelt Sr. says to his boy, you're sick, you're not doing well, you're just going to have to overcome this problem. You need to make your body. And, And the account goes... Teddy threw back his head and flashed his toothy grin and said, then I'll make my body and then signed up to go to a gymnasium. This is in the 1870s when gymnasiums are becoming popular for the first time in the United States. The YMCA movement is getting going he starts working out all the time and getting a lot of physical exercise. He'd always liked physical exercise that he hadn't avoided it. I loved the outdoors, but now he's really deliberate about doing it. And lo and behold, the asthma starts to recede. It never really went away for Roosevelt. He had it all his life. But as happens with so many asthma sufferers, it got better as he got older. And it became less and less of a handicap. So by the time he's an adult, he's kind of overcome this thing, or at least he thinks he has. And he connects it with his own determination to become involved in exercise and physical activity. So he thinks he beat asthma through physical vigor. And he connects this with sports, and he sees sports and athletics and so on and so forth as one way to help Americans generally become healthier. So he's a big advocate of these types of things, and when it comes under fire, By the time he's president, he wants to help save this new institution in American life.
1: Yeah, this is what he meant when he said the strenuous life. Believe that you should really be up against physical odds and that you could work your way through anything. I sometimes think of it as that last scene in Patton, not the first movie, but the second that George C. Scott did when he says by force of will, after he has his neck broken, he's able to move his finger. And of course, his finger isn't moving, but he's just convinced himself that there's nothing that he can't by force of his spirit overcome. And Theodore Roosevelt was very much... Much like that. He was somebody who I think people picture as just smashing his way through things, you know, and rightly so on many things when he could, but he wasn't above diplomacy. He's awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, the first American to win it for mediating the Russo-Japanese War. And here you're talking about two sides, obviously, have just fought a bloody conflict that are certainly, you would hope, farther apart than Americans who are pro and against football. So when he decides he's going to make these calls to people to try to get them to sit down and reform the game, not destroy the game, does he have to twist arms or do people mostly come willingly to the president?
0: That's a great question. And I like the fact that you pointed out his skills as a diplomat. Theodore Roosevelt was a great politician. I suppose you have to be if you're going to be president, but he was a great politician and a great diplomat. And he knew how to persuade people and make them see things his way and get things done. And so in 1905, in the midst of this lethal football season, when 18 people died, he summoned to the White House the coaches from the three top football programs in america if you were doing that today i suppose they would be from alabama and ohio state and auburn i don't know back then the top programs were harvard and yale and princeton all from the ivy league it shows you how much things have changed but those were the top three football programs in america he sends them to the white house the coach from yale was a fellow named walter camp It's a name a lot of football fans know because he's really sort of the founding father of football. Football has an inventor, a single inventor. It was a number of people, but but really the most responsible guy for developing the game is Walter Camp. He was first a player at Yale, then he became a legendary coach. But really his legacy is as a rules maker and turning the game into something that began to look like what we play today. At any rate these three coaches show up at the White House in October of 1905. And Roosevelt says exactly what you quoted, football's on trial. And he says to them, you guys need to fix this problem football has with violence and brutality. He doesn't tell them what to do. He doesn't say, here's here's a set of rules you need to adopt. He doesn't say that. He says, you football men solve football's problem because if you don't, we're going to lose this sport. And we don't want that to happen. So he took that initiative And basically uh, tossed it right back at these coaches and say, fix this problem that football has. That's not the end of the story, but that's really how it got going.
1: And you go, obviously, into detail there in the big scrum about how he does this and how he, as you said, a diplomat. People picture him. There was a long period in their 20th century there where he was kind of dismissed as the caricature in Arsenic and Old Lace, running upstairs, screaming charge, and just kind of a buffoon, really. And he's come, obviously, roaring back here, partially a result of the efforts of Tweed Roosevelt getting him the Congressional Medal of Honor that he was denied, that kind of thing. But he really was a multifaceted person. And he understood how to work people in a way that with something like football. You might expect it in politics, but here he is in something that he just really loved. He's wearing his Yale sweaters. I'm sorry. Gosh, sorry, TR. He's wearing his Harvard sweater there at the game early on in the book, and he cares about it. So you see a different side of him. And for people that love Theodore Roosevelt, it's just great to be able to see him at a sporting game. It's almost like going to a game with him. And I think we never ask, who would you like to go to a football game with? We ask, who would you like to have drinks with? Or who would you like to go to dinner with? But if you ask people who they'd want to go to a football game with, TR might not pop into their head, but he clearly was a fun guy, and he looked at the game in a multifaceted way. It wasn't as a blood sport. He saw it as doing a lot of social goods for the players that played it, and so he doesn't want to see it get destroyed. Today, most of the attacks, they focus on the money involved, so it would be interesting if we could ask him what he thought of that, but the values that TR defended in the game that he wanted to preserve, they're still present today in players, aren't they?
0: Absolutely. Roosevelt saw football not only as a fun sport to play and to watch, but he, he saw it as a positive social good. He really thought it helped turn boys into men. Why do we encourage our kids to participate in athletics? It's a thing I ask all the time. I'm a parent, I have three kids involved in a bunch of different sports. You know, why are we always driving around to practices and games, and why do we make this such an important part of our lives? And when I talk to other parents about what's the purpose of all this, you hear a few things. The first thing you often hear is, well, exercise is good, physical fitness, and so on. That's almost the immediate response, and that, of course, is all true. When you probe a little bit deeper, the reason why we do it essentially is because we think sports can teach lessons that you can't learn in other ways. You can learn things on the field or on the court that you cannot learn in a classroom or from books. And it's things like when you get knocked down, you need to stand back up, how to work with teammates, how to win and lose with grace. These are things that sports can teach that really nothing else teaches nearly as well, these sorts of intangible things. And there's really something to this, it turns out. There was a study that came out seven, eight years ago at this point that shows today people who play high school sports earn more money as adults. Hmm. A lot of questions why that might be true, Maybe it's just a correlation. Maybe the go-getters tend to play sports and they also do well later in life economically. But maybe sports has something to do with it as well. Maybe you learn things through sports that turn you into the kind of person who becomes a go-getter. I tend toward the latter, thinking that sports help form our characters. And Roosevelt believed this too. He thought sports shaped character, and they shaped it for the better. Parents had an interest in their children developing this character, and that we as a nation have an interest in helping people develop this character.
1: And developing character, very much a big part of going to college back then. Of course, in a place like Harvard, it would have been all men pretty much from all the same background. I I don't believe that they'd even had their first African-American student there yet. Maybe they had. But the president there, Charles William Elliott, listeners may remember him from when I talked to Charles Learson about his book, Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, as far as the way that people looked at sports back then. And his idea was that he didn't like breakout runs in football. He thought they were ungentlemanly, and you should just sort of slam headfirst into the pile and see what would, what you would get. Don't be sneaky and look for a hole. I mean, think of it today. We praise players who are able to find a hole and get there fast and return the ball all the way down for a touchdown, right? You get excited just talking about it. But this is sort of the Victorian legacy that TR is confronting when he comes into this. They're seeing people get smashed to pieces, and they don't really want that. So when he needs to convince Elliot to reform, not destroy the game, describe the relationship that they have on this issue.
0: So I mentioned earlier that at the first part of the 20th century, there was this large and broad-based social movement, political movement to ban football. Its leader, its ringleader – was Charles Eliot, who was president of Harvard for 40 years, longer than anybody before or since. And he's probably the most important figure in the history of American higher education. When we think of Harvard as America's greatest college, its quintessential research institution, it's because of Eliot and what he did when he was president. He introduced the idea of elective courses. He started professional schools. He ended compulsory worship. And Harvard did a lot of these things first. Other schools followed suit. They wanted to mimic Harvard. They wanted to be like Harvard. Charles Eliot is simply the most important figure in the history of American higher education. He hated football. If you read his words, he calls it evil. He condemns it as evil over and over and over again. He despised its brutality. He despised its violence. And he thought really the only solution was to get rid of it. He worked very hard to get rid of it at Harvard. He would think that he's president. He could just, you know, wave his magic wand and get rid of it. But actually, he couldn't. There were all kinds of governance issues as to why he couldn't. He had to work with professors. He had to work with alumni. And alumni love football. It was a hard thing for him to do, but he Fought it. He fought it at Harvard. He fought it nationally, and ultimately he became Roosevelt's big rival, and they clashed over this very issue. Elliot was about a generation older than Roosevelt. He was president of Harvard when Roosevelt was a freshman there, so they really knew each other for decades. And when they were clashing, you would read their correspondence. They would, they would express annoyance with each other in, in letters to other people, and and so on. But they just had different visions about what sports were and what the solution to football's problems might be. They both recognized the problem. Eliot's solution was to prohibit the thing. Roosevelt's solution was to reform it.
1: And it's not so far-fetched, the idea of banning it. The Georgia legislature voted to ban football. And in The Big Scrum, you tell the story of the mother of a player who went to the governor and prevailed upon him to veto the bill. How did she do it and why did she do it?
0: So the drive to ban football was taking place at many different places, at many different levels of government. And you're right. In Georgia in the late 1800s, the legislature actually voted to ban football. It did this because a player for the University of Georgia died on the playing field. Politicians reacted then, as, as they often do now. There's a public crisis and they want to do something, right? So the legislators banned football. The bill winds up on the governor's desk. Will he sign it or won't he sign it? At this point, the mother of the player who had died playing football appealed to the governor and said, please don't sign the bill. My boy loved the sport. It may have killed him, but let's not have his legacy be the banning of a thing he loved. And so the governor vetoed it. But it goes to show you how this was happening at a lot of different places. And the threat to ban football was very real. And its fans, its advocates and Roosevelt, they were all worried that might break through and succeed somewhere.
1: And I thought of a similar story about that. Eric LeGrand, who, again, playing for Rutgers, I was at that game. It was the first college game they played at the New Meadowlands Stadium. And he was injured on a kickoff return, collided with the ball carrier for Army, broke his neck, and is confined to a wheelchair now from the neck down. And when they wanted to move, well, they did move, right, the kickoff, He said, Take it from someone who has gotten injured on a kickoff. I think kickoffs in the NFL should return to the way they used to be because lots of football players can make a career out of playing on special teams. And the new system takes some of the thrill and excitement of the game out. And I thought, gosh, to get it right from the mouth of somebody who obviously has this life-altering injury and has had to just battle and be an inspiration for people, that's the role that he's picked up and taken. I said, I think that's something that if you don't watch it, maybe people who are just listening because they like TR, they don't get how much it means to the guys that are playing it.
0: Well, that's that's an amazing thing that he said. And I think I think just about everybody is concerned about – the problems we see in football today. And the good news is we know a lot more about concussions right now than we did, say, 10 years ago. There's a lot of research going into it. We're getting much better at diagnosing it. There are still a lot of mysteries, a lot of uncertainties, in fact, about what causes it, uh, how to treat it, so on and so forth. But we're seeing a lot more interest certainly at the youth sports league and coaches are becoming more familiar with the idea of concussions and what you do when a player may have one you don't immediately send them right back out on the field for instance there's a greater awareness and I think that's a positive thing there are all kinds of conversations about what we might do in addition to that you hear of different helmet technologies and exercise methods that may help players cope with some of these problems or prevent some of these problems These are all good things. Then you hear conversations about rule changes and moving the place of the kickoff in the NFL. That was done explicitly to uh, reduce the number of injuries players suffer. Special teams play is much more prone to injury than other kinds of play in football. As a consequence of that, we have many fewer kick returns in football. We, We have definitely lost an element of the game. You can debate whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but the good news is a lot of people are talking about this, and they're trying to come up with creative solutions, and this is exactly the sort of thing that was happening back in Roosevelt's era. These guys uh, were looking at football's problem. He invites the coaches to the White House in 1905. A lot of creative thinking went into solving this problem, and uh, they managed to do a good
1: thing. We talked about the strenuous life earlier. Theodore Roosevelt gave one version of his strenuous life speech to a children's magazine, and he says, in life as in football, the principle to follow is hit the line hard, don't foul and don't shirk, but hit the line hard, which sounds is a, a very, very TR thing to say, you know, play it honorably, play it well, but play it hard, leave it all out of the field, I guess we'd say today. As you were talking about his skill as a diplomat, it reminded me of his slogan with his children or the chant when they would run races at Hill. He would point to a place there, maybe at Oyster Bay on the beach, wherever it was, a tree in the distance. And he would tell the children, go, but go in a straight line. And any obstacle that they came up against, the children would shout over, under or through, but never around. And that's very much how he sort of goes about resolving this. He sees in the distance what he wants, a safe football game that's still football. But you guys work out the details because I'm president. I'm doing a bunch of other things and I'm not the expert here. I'm I'm a fan, but I'm the first fan in the nation. So it's very similar there to how he addresses this problem where he's not going to be micromanaging. He's not going to be picking out toilets, as they famously said about LBJ in this fight during the Vietnam War and picking it. He gives them a goal and then he gets good people to sort of push them in the right direction. And he holds them in a room together.
0: Exactly. So what happened after this White House meeting is the coaches all said, "Yeah, yeah, we want to we want to solve football's problem too. We'll we'll give that some real thought, Mr. President. Thank you very much." And they left. Well, Walter Camp, who was the Yale coach, the legendary Yale coach, he had helped develop the game of football uh, for decades at this point and it had become really popular in his lifetime and and was becoming ever more popular and he thought they had gotten the rules of football just about right. He didn't really think it needed a change at all. He in fact probably would have done nothing. His intention was really to do nothing after this uh, White House meeting. There's another guy at the meeting, the coach of Harvard, a fellow named Bill Reed, younger than Walter Camp. He'd been a player at at Harvard and became the coach. He understood the threat to football a little bit differently. One, he was younger. Two, he was at Harvard, so he was dealing with President Elliot, and he was really concerned that Elliot was on the brink of having Harvard drop football as a sport. And if Harvard had dropped football, A lot of other colleges and universities in America also would have dropped football because they were looking to Harvard for leadership. They wanted to be like Harvard. So he understood the threat to football a little bit differently. And ultimately what he did is he outmaneuvered Walter Camp. Walter Camp had dominated a rules-making body that had set the rules for football that everybody else played with. Bill Reed, that winter after that 1905 season finished, started his own rules committee and he had representatives from reform-minded presidents at other colleges and universities and eventually sort of overwhelmed walter camp this body that bill reed started is today known as the ncaa this is the birth of the ncaa this gigantic organization that does so much in college sports but this is its birth and and what it does in this critical off season of 1905 and 1906 is it passes a series of sweeping rules changes to football. For example, made a first down, not five yards, but 10 yards. The personal foul became a heavily penalized infraction. Previously, just been a kind of a minor thing, but now it's a big deal if you throw a punch or something. A number of rule changes like this, all with an eye toward reducing the violence and brutality of the sport the thing they kept talking about back in this day was opening up the game rather than having a bunch of big brutish men slam into each other at the center of the field over and over again they wanted to open up the game and use the whole field The revolutionary thing they introduced was the forward pass, because up until this moment, you could hand off the ball to a running back. You could toss the ball backward and kind of a lateral pass. What you could not do is throw the ball downfield. There were quarterbacks, but there were no wide receivers. And a lot of football people had talked about this idea, let's have a forward pass. But Walter Camp had always resisted them. He did not like this idea. He thought it'd be bad for football, change the sport and make it worse. He wanted nothing to do with it well this rules committee introduced the forward pass and it changed the game it turned something that looked a lot like rugby into the distinctively american sport we know today and of course this was a great innovation for the game we love the passing game it's one of the aesthetically most pleasing parts of football the passes is an exciting play So they introduced it back then. It had the happy effect then of reducing the violence. There would still be tragedies on the field, as you noted earlier with the player from Rutgers. It did not eliminate violence and brutality, but it made the game a lot safer. And suddenly you didn't have nearly as many players dying on the field. So it had the nice effect of making football both a better sport to watch, a more exciting sport to watch and also a safer sport for the players.
1: My guest is John J. Miller this Super Bowl week, and the book is The Big Scrum, How Teddy Roosevelt Saved Football. Library Journal highly recommended The Big Scrum, and they wrote, quote, although TR was too small to play college football, he was a big fan of the sport, unquote. And when I read that review, I thought of TR's small size, which always surprises people. He's only about 5'8". TR is certainly no LT, Lawrence Taylor. He had feet so small that when he was at Harvard, he brought along his sister's slippers and he wore those. Just, I mean, it just blows you away when you think of this Titanic rough riding figure. So he's not big enough to play, but his son, Ted Jr., does play. And he, of course, very much followed this strenuous life idea. He grows up to be a hero on the D-Day landings. He's the oldest man to go ashore there. So as a young man, he learns many of these values. But as you can imagine, when you're the president's son and you're out there on the field, you're going to get knocked around a little extra just for prestige. So how did their father-son bond develop by the fact that Ted was playing football?
0: Roosevelt was not just president. He was also a dad. And while he was president, his son was on Harvard's football team. He was on kind of a JV squad, but he played football. And Roosevelt had some mixed emotions about this. On, on the one hand, he was proud that his son was playing this rough sport and he was doing this manly thing and so on. On the other hand, he was kind of worried. He knew that the sport had its problems and only wanted the best for his boy. He wanted him he wanted him to play and Didn't mind if he got knocked around a little bit, but he certainly didn't want something bad to happen to the kid. But There was a game when his son, playing for Harvard, broke his nose, and he wrote this letter to his father, the president, and recounted how he broke his nose. Broken noses, by the way, were were, were among the most frequent injuries that players suffered. It's probably hardly a game that was played in which a guy didn't break his nose back then. (laughs) He wrote this letter to his father about how he broke his nose early in the game, and he kept on playing. And it was like a hockey player who, you know, loses three teeth and goes back in the locker room and gets it stitched up and makes his next shift, you know, just sort of the, yeah. the quintessential tough guy. A little bit of that going on there too. And, you know, the father was proud of him for doing that. You're tough and that's good and we want tough men. We want tough Roosevelt men. He loved that on the one hand. On the other hand, he didn't want something bad to happen to the boy. And in their correspondence in Roosevelt's writings, you see these mixed emotions of the father who is both taking pride in the accomplishments of his kid and also worried about him. It's, it's really kind of touching.
1: And it is touching. If you ever want to read something about, as I said, a different side of Roosevelt, go read his letters to his children. I believe it's published under the headline, The Lion's Pride. But they are very loving, and he does a lot of doodles on the bottom and this kind of thing. So he he isn't an absentee father by any means. Uh, well, maybe they would say a little bit in the beginning with Alice, but that was understandable. His mother and his first wife dying on the same day, leaving him a little infant that he was not equipped to take care of. But as for Ted and these nose injuries, it if If you ever go to the Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, you'll see all the things they have displayed there. It's really a great museum. This is where they have the induction every year. And I would also encourage people to go to the William McKinley Memorial site and library that's right up the street from the Hall of Fame, another link to TR there. But they have so many artifacts from all these years of football that they – Don't display them all at once, but they'll have a couple of guys come from sort of the library and they'll bring down pieces. They'll show you a piece of some kind of strange. It's not fabric. It's not metal and ask you what it is. And it turns out it's a piece of the Astrodome. And they brought out the first piece of protective equipment. And it was just sort of a metal bit that you'd put in your teeth. And then you would cover your nose so your nose wouldn't get broken in a hit, which is great, except you would smash out all your front teeth. But it was kind of a step there in the right direction. And this is what they're dealing with here. They're inventing everything from whole cloth. And nobody, of course, wants to get killed. But you also don't want to lose the good things from the game. And one of the good things from TR's point of view was this idea of muscular Christianity, this idea, as McKinley had said, he was a soldier for the union and a soldier for Christ. As he started to run for president, he kind of dropped the soldier for Christ because he didn't want to, you know, I guess it's sort of the same way you would today. You don't see people necessarily wearing their religion on their sleeve. But at that first football game between Rutgers and Princeton, there was famously a man on the sideline shaking his umbrella and kept shouting at the players, you'll come to no good Christian end. TR had the opposite opinion. He, felt that this was very important and you point this out in the big scrum tr's philosophy of christianity and manhood and making your body and keeping it as a palace i guess they would say citizenship this is all things that he sees in the game and it's why he loves it so much it's not the brutality
0: that's right he saw football as a positive social good and connected it with Christianity. The muscular Christianity movement in the late 19th century said things like, we need to worry about our spiritual health, obviously, but our body is a temple and we need to treat it that way. It's a gift from God and we need to treat it with respect. We need to develop it and make sure that we're healthy. And and so this movement of muscular Christianity, they called it, is actually behind the YMCA movement and the development of gyms and the notion of physical fitness is growing out of this. They connected with kind of a Christian obligation to do these things it was also during a period in American life when a lot of people were moving from the country to the city. They were taking up jobs in factories and working on assembly lines, and there was a little bit of a concern that, that we were losing our national health because previously you, you would engage in vigorous activity on a farm, doing all kinds of stuff, and now you're standing in one place all day long, you know, twisting a widget over and over and over again, and what does this mean for our national health? Are people, in fact, becoming uh, weaker? And so the Muscular Christianity Movement was trying to address that as well. There's, there's a modern corollary today where we worry maybe you know kids are playing too many video games. They're sitting in front of TVs and on their iPads and playing video games. They should be outside running around. And so we're always trying to encourage them to put down their screens, turn off their screens, and go outside. It's the same kind of thing back then, a notion that we need to develop our bodies. But beyond that, Roosevelt thought sports were positive social goods, and he thought the rough sports, as he called them, and football particularly, were some of the very best. And this is best seen in the story of the Rough Riders. A lot of us have heard the legend that in 1898, when the USS Maine blew up in the harbor of Havana, and we knew war was coming, we knew we were going to fight the Spanish in Cuba, Roosevelt resigned his job as assistant secretary of the Navy, went out west to San Antonio, and recruited a regiment that he called the Rough Riders. And he went out there, he went out west, because... He wanted the kinds of men he had met when he was ranching in North Dakota in the 1880s. He wanted these kinds of these ranchers, these cowboys. These are the men I want with me when I go with my regiment and fight in Cuba. These are the tough men I want. That's the legend. And it's basically true. That's basically what he did. When you read his memoir, though, it's called The Rough Riders. When you read his memoir of the experience, he says all these things. He says one more thing. He says, I wanted football players. He made a deliberate effort to recruit football players because he thought guys who had played football in college had a kind of toughness that would help him win a war in Cuba. And then, of course, he charges up San Juan Hill in this act of bravery. Eventually, he's awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for what he did there. And in this moment, he becomes a war hero. And it's this incident that gets people talking about him as possibly a president. Maybe this man is great enough to be a president. He connected his success there on the battlefield with the kinds of men who he's surrounded with. And remember, they were cowboys and ranchers and football players. He saw football as a thing that turned boys into men, and he wanted all kinds of boys, all kinds of Americans to benefit from this.
1: And if people haven't seen it, the John Milius movie The Rough Riders bases it very much on TR's autobiography other than some strange thing there when he's at his gravesite there's a few anachronisms other than that it's very very faithful to the book and uh, oh and he puts Germans in there and there were no Germans and if you listen to the commentary of John Milius he says well you know you have to put some, some Germans in there he's like you know and then he refers to them as Nazis and catches himself and it's kind of funny but he, uh, that was a very very big part of his life obviously bringing those people in there I was interested that you wrote that in general it's probably best for politicians to steer clear of sports controversies and yet you wrote a whole book here in the big scrum where tr's jumping into it and you're clearly admiring of his actions in saving football so what's the roosevelt doctrine here as politicians are going to have even more pressure there's of course the concussion movie out right now with will smith what do you think politicians should do if they just sort of step back a minute and do love the game but want to reform it make it safer
0: That's a great question. I I think as a general rule, we don't need our politicians involved in our sports as a general rule. The experience of Roosevelt, I do think shows that a skillful leader with a deft touch can solve a vaccine problem. So you never say never on the politicians and sports, but I think the greater threat is that they're going to mess up a thing rather than fix a thing. Roosevelt is maybe the exception that proves the rule there. What Roosevelt shows, though, is to the extent that they are going to get involved, what they should do is put pressure on people closest to the sport, the coaches, the players, the participants, put pressure on them to fix the sport rather than come up with their own solution, right? I mean, the last thing we need is like Congress starting to pass NFL rules in our politics of this day and age. I'm afraid that's where we might actually go. I mean, we have had congressional hearings on the BCS series and the gentleman from Alabama, you know, opining upon uh, how college football should organize itself. And that really doesn't lead to a very good place. We should have everybody encouraging football to think about these problems, and I think it really is, but continue to perform research into the nature of concussions, make sure coaches at every level understand the problems and and some of the basic things you do if you think you have a player who might be injured, and then think about equipment and exercise methods and even rules that might help make the game safer. And, And finally, I think we need to remember what might have been Roosevelt's central insight, which is there's no such thing as a risk-free activity. You really can't legislate that nobody's ever going to get hurt in football. It is a rough sport. We can do things that probably make it more dangerous or less dangerous. But at some point, there's going to be a certain amount of risk. And you got to learn to live with that. There's no such thing as a risk-free activity. you got to learn to live with it and need to find an acceptable level of it. And the corollary would be this. People die in car accidents. It's a terrible thing when it happens. But does that mean we need to outlaw cars? And the answer is no. Kids can get hurt riding their bikes, sometimes tragically, lethally hurt. They can die riding bikes. Well, should we ban bike riding? No. You know, Maybe we encourage kids to wear helmets, things like that. So is the answer to football the elimination of it, the prohibition of it? I think the answer there is no. It's to think through how we might reform it to make it a little bit safer and make some of the risks manageable or acceptable. But let's recognize there is no such thing as a risk-free activity.
1: And we still want to get those benefits out of it. There's not – you wrap somebody in bubble wrap, often people say, oh, gosh, that the kid was too sheltered, right? We still have that phrase. And as far as something like the YMCA – worth mentioning to people that may not know, maybe too young to have ever heard the acronym spelled out. It is the Young Men's Christian Association, right? So this is sort of the roots. You can see once you read a book like The Big Scrum, you start to see the roots of TR's reform and TR's era in everything that we do. So I wanted to point that out. But you've given very generously of your time, extremely generous of you to come on and talk about this, especially Super Bowl week when we all want to be planning our wings and our menu and where we're going to go. But it's late in the fourth quarter of the interview you now, so I'll squeeze in one last question. You're a Michigan man, as we mentioned, so the maize and blue means a lot to you. If we have any people who are hostile to football, who just don't get it, who dismiss it as a kid's game or a blood sport, give them your best pitch for why the game matters.
0: Well, I'd say first and foremost, I would just return to Roosevelt. It's a positive social good. It helps turn boys into men. It can turn girls into women. It just helps people grow up. It teaches things that you can't learn in any other way. I could get sentimental about football pretty quickly. I met my wife on the way to a Michigan football game. We were freshmen back at the University of Michigan. It's been a part of my life this whole time. It's really enriched my own life, just the enjoyment that it's brought. Then the participation of my own kids in athletics, watching them grow up. They didn't play much football. They played other sports, including rough sports like hockey. But watching them grow up and seeing sports improve their own characters. This is something we can't lose. We must have it. I'm all for thinking through some of the problems we have in football, thinking about reforms, learning more about concussions, learning how to prevent them, doing our best to prevent them. But we need kids playing sports. It's one of the best things they can do growing up. The problem we face today is not that kids are playing too much football. It's they're not playing enough football. or They're not playing enough sports. We need to get them out on the fields, get them exercising, learning the lessons that you can only learn in, in these places.
1: And it's something you have a connection to your whole life. I heard somebody say once that, well, the difference between rooting for a pro team, whether it's the Detroit Lions or the New York Giants, we can buy all the swag we want and the hats and watch the games, but we're never going to be a member of that football team. We're never going to make it to the NFL. But you can go to your college team, you can root for them, and you're a university student at the same university as a star player on that team. The players that come from our universities that are going to be playing in the Super Bowl this week, we can relate to that. And I think that That sense of community, which is a word that people love to throw around. You get it through football. You get it through rooting for it. So I'm really glad that you were able to come on with me today and talk about this. John J. Miller, author of The Big Scrum. If you love football, if you love TR, or even if you don't pick it up, and I bet you will by the time you finish the book. Thank you so much for sharing the story of Theodore Roosevelt and his key role in saving the game. We love so much. Thanks a lot, Dean. Today's book has been The Big Scrum, How Teddy Roosevelt Saved Football. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy of the book at historyauthor.com. And it's a good book to read during this long offseason that always follows the Super Bowl when you just can't wait to get some football in your head. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy of the book at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Or even bookmark the URL at historyauthor.com for all your online purchases. It just takes a minute. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it helps to give us a few pennies every time you buy something. Once again, my sincere thanks to John J. Miller for joining me and for sharing Theodore Roosevelt's overlooked but vital contribution to preserving football as the game we love today. Please remember to follow John at Hey Miller on Twitter, like him at Facebook.com/HeyMiller and pay him a visit at heymiller.com. You can also please listen to his show, It's the Bookmonger with John J. Miller. You can subscribe on iTunes and enjoy a broader spectrum of all sorts of books than just history. And remember, let us know what you think of The Big Scrum and the interview on Twitter at historyd or at facebook.com slash author. I hope you'll join us next week for another trip into the past here on iHeartRadio or wherever it is you're listening. And remember, if you do subscribe to us on iTunes, please leave a review. Well, that's it for this week's special Super Bowl football edition of the History Author Show. So until next Monday morning, thanks so much for listening and happy reading.